It's good to see you. My name is Robert. For those of you that are guests with us this morning, I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, it's my privilege now to uh, open up the Word of God, uh, to read the Word of God, uh, and by God's grace and, and through the power of His Spirit, do the best that I can do to help explain the Word of God to us, that we would, by God's grace, be conformed into the image of His Son into the character of his son as he's revealed himself in his word. And, and this week, as I've thought about how we're going to conclude the, the series that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, really the better part of the summer, I've been asking myself this question. As, as this kind of marks the week when the migration to Redemption Hill begins to pick back up, you know, this week kind of starts the process of vacations winding down, students coming back. Uh, we'll have Labor Day in a week or so, so that'll kind of dull out again, and then pick back up the next week, and the migration of, like, the birds coming back from the, from the winter is going to start. I've been asking myself uh, a lot this week, why are you here? Really? I mean, why are you here? I mean, it's Sunday morning, 1035. Oh, I'm have to go fast. 10.35 on Sunday morning in Richmond, Virginia. There's a million things that you could be doing. I mean, we've got a river that runs through the middle of our city. And on any given Sunday morning, in the spring, the summer, the fall here in Richmond, you could be out on the river, walking trails in a park in an island that surrounds the river, hanging out with your friends, having brunch and sipping mimosas at Millie's, eating some hash or at Kitchen 64, where there's some great steak and eggs. You could be hanging out, talking about the shows you saw last night at any number of the music venues around town. But instead, at 10.30 on Sunday morning, you're in a metal folding chair in an elementary school gymnasium with purple walls and, and rubber floors. So I had to ask myself, uh, why, why are you here? I mean, why do we actually do this. And the longer that I've been a pastor and the more conversations that I've had with the people that God brings in my path, the more convinced I am that if I were to catch you at a moment of honesty, I mean, if I were to really present an opportunity where you could answer a question that I were to ask you with the fullness of your heart and with all sincerity, with no fear of judgment or repercussion, and I were to ask you why you're here, I'm more convinced now than ever that a great number of people would say, I, I, I'm, I'm here because I have this vague sense of religious duty, and, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm in desperate need of some type of assurance, some type of emotional security and insurance that, that God is not done with me that God is not angry with me. I have some vague religious sense of duty that nags me on Sunday morning and I have this emotional and, dare I say, spiritual need to have an assurance that before the God who created all things that exist, I'm okay. That I'm okay. And you know, wanting that assurance and Wanting that comfort in and of itself is not a bad thing, but as I thought about it more and more, if that becomes the primary purpose for our gathering together on Sunday morning and our gathering together throughout the week in the scattered places where we go to encourage one another, if the primary purpose for our our gathering together is to provide some resource for you to feel assured so that you can go and cope with the everyday realities, I, I think we've missed the point of why we're here. If our gathering together 
simply becomes an outpost for resourcing fearful people to face the troubled world that they deal with day in and day out, I think we might have missed our point. See, I I had to answer the question for myself, and I can say with great confidence and and great certainty that, that I, and I honestly believe many of you are here because we actually believe and are convinced that God intends for our community, for this people, to be a missionary people who are overflowing with a confidence and a courage in the faith and the mercy and justice and love of God. God intends for us to be a a missionary community that overflows in zeal, in courage, in confidence, in mercy, in love. God has an intention for his people. And I'm afraid that if we're honest, and if we were to allow ourselves to be truly honest, honest, that for a great many of us, we have stopped seeing the purpose of God's work in our lives and drawing us together to be that kind of people. I think we've allowed ourselves to begin to see our time together and the purpose of our time and the purpose of our community to be a resource, to help us just cope, to deal with all the things that we have to face. God's intention for his people is so much more than that. God's intention for his people is so much more than that. That's what we've been talking about this summer for those of you who have been here and for those of you who are are just now joining us with the migration. We've been talking about God's intention for his people, for his church, and and we've been doing that by by looking at a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, who who helped start and plant and pastor so many of the churches that we read about in the Bible, he wrote a letter to a good friend of his named Titus. You see, there was this church in in the island of Crete that was a whole lot like Redemption Hill. Uh, There was a church that had sprung up from the preaching of the gospel It had started with a few, but as the gospel went forward and a confidence grew in the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, people began to come and their lives began to collide with that message and transformation began to take place and people began to come together and the Apostle Paul and and his buddy Titus were were cultivating an enjoyment of the message of grace in the people that were there, but Paul had to move on to the next thing that God had for him, so he left his friend Titus there in Crete to give shape and order to this new and, and budding church that was so much like ours. You know, that church in Crete probably had existed when this letter came for about a year and a half, and we just hit the two-year mark just a couple of months ago. And the message of the gospel had gone forward as it's gone forward here, and it had drawn together an unbelievably unique blend of ethnicities and and, and economic backgrounds and and ages, and there was generational diversity and ethnic diversity and economic diversity in this place, and people were having to learn how to be God's people together on God's mission for God's glory, and and the Apostle Paul wrote his buddy Titus this letter to encourage him and and how to give shape to this new and, and growing community of faith, and he wrote this letter to encourage Titus, ultimately, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, to to keep the main thing the main thing. That with all the stuff that was happening and all the things they could be excited about and and all the ways that they could go and all the paths that they could pursue, the Apostle Paul wrote his friend Titus who was pastoring a young church just like ours and he encouraged him, Titus, keep the main thing the main thing. Of all the things you're gonna be tempted to go after, 
of all the things you're going to be tempted to put your hope in, to put your trust in, to explain the process of what's happening by, Titus, keep the main thing the main thing. And for the last half of the summer, we've been talking about what that is as we've gone through this letter. How the Apostle Paul has encouraged Titus and by God's grace now encouraged us here in Richmond, Virginia in the 21st century to keep the main thing the main thing. If we want to see healthy church growth. And by growth, we meant healthy church maturation. If we want to see a people brought together by the grace of God and conformed into the image of God as he's revealed himself in his word, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And the thing that we've been talking about is we've got to be about enjoying the grace of God. We've got to be a people who are intent and insistent in all ways and in all things to enjoy the grace of God. So this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul wraps that letter up to his buddy Titus. How he takes this encouragement to to enjoy the grace of God, to find leaders who enjoy the grace of God, to have them lead men and women whose lives reflect an enjoyment in the grace of God, who sense responsibility to see the grace of God enjoyed by their brothers and sisters, who sense a responsibility to take that message to others that they might enjoy the grace of God. How is he going to wrap this up? If you've got your Bible, open it up to Titus chapter 3. And we're going to look at the last bit of encouragement that the Apostle Paul gives Titus this morning and by God's grace gives us. And as before we do, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together, we can be brought together by your grace, that we can surrender ourselves with the encouragement and the power of your spirit to your word. Help us in the time that we have left, to surrender our souls to your word. Lord, and we ask that in our weakness, Lord, in my weakness, I am a a weak man with very weak words, and, and I pray that, Lord, by your spirit, that your word will go forward and that your strength will be made known in your word that you've promised does not return void. And I pray that as your word goes forward this morning, as your word is proclaimed, Lord, our souls would surrender to it. That whatever glory we seek in our own this morning, whatever distractions would seek to keep us from surrendering to your word, from hearing and seeing the beauty of your glory and your word, I pray that by your spirit you would remove them. You would demolish anything that would exalt itself in our hearts and in our minds this morning. Lord, may we be increasingly conformed to the image of your son by your grace and for your glory. We ask these things that as we go forward as your people today and tomorrow and the weeks to come, that that the way that we live, the words that we say, that every fabric of our life together and the places that you sent us would reflect a deep enjoyment of your grace. We can ask this with assurance and confidence because of the person and the work of your son, Jesus, who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Amen. Amen. Titus chapter three. This is gonna be fun. Here's how Paul's gonna wrap up his letter to his buddy Titus and his letter to us. He's going to start here, a place we've already been, but I'll remind you of it really quickly. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. I'll just say this, because we've talked about this in weeks past already, under the varying authorities that God's grace compels us and and enables us to submit to, that it's interesting to note that Paul felt it encouraging and, and necessary to remind Titus, to remind the people that this is something they have to do. 
I mean, there's going to be a desire that wells up within us, oftentimes sinful, sometimes righteous, that is going to have a hard time submitting to the authorities, the civic rulers and the civic authorities that we find ourselves in. And as hard as it was for the church in Crete to submit to the rule of Rome, Paul's encouragement to them through Titus was not for them to bunker up with tuna and firearms and wait for the day when they could rise again or revolt. But it was by God's grace and in a deep enjoyment of his grace and what that means for who they are was to submit to their rulers and not just to submit, but to be obedient and always ready to do what's good. That they should be looking with intention and purpose for ways in which they could bless and encourage the well-being of the people in their city. They were to be looking intentionally, instinctively, searching, hunting for ways that with their lives, with their resources, with their mouths, with whatever they had and all that they are, to be looking for ways that they could increase the well-being of the people around them. Paul said, remind them of this, Titus. We've talked about this. We will keep going. And here's where it gets interesting for this morning. Verse 2, they must not slander anyone, and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. And this is one of the things I love about this particular text because in the past few weeks in, in some of our rabbit trails, and, and for those of you who, who are new with us this morning, you're probably wondering how I could take an entire summer to go through three chapters of a particular book, and it's because I take a lot of rabbit trails. Well, I said it last week, and I hope it proved true for those of you who are here. If, if I go on a rabbit trail, my prayer is that God always enables me to bring back a rabbit. I mean, Ray's taught me that. So hopefully we brought back rabbits over the summer for you. But the one thing I love about this passage, and we highlighted in the weeks previous as we talked about proper submission in the different spheres and relationships that we have in our lives as men and women and workers and, 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 and citizens and, and the struggles that we have with that kind of submission and that kind of, of life and that kind of living we looked at last week in First Peter, an honorable life before the people around us. I love here at the end of Titus with all the distinctions that he made in Titus 2 that make us so indignant sometimes so frustrated that we would be encouraged to live in this particularly submissive way that, that Paul encourages Titus to remind everybody. Men, women, everybody. Watch your mouths. I know I just said a, a few verses ago in the letter, Titus, for, for women to pay particular attention to their mouths and, and to not be characterized by slander and gossip. And, and before the men rise up or the women rise up in revolt, let me just remind everybody What is to be true of them is honestly to be true of all of us. Our lives, because of a deep enjoyment of God's grace and an understanding of who he is and what he has done for us, should shape us and should shape the very words we speak. Our mouths are not to be used for slander and gossip, but instead our lives are to display a true humility before everybody, everyone, all believers, men and women. Our lives are to display a true humility and I love that. And, and for those of you who, who are following along and who have used the Bibles that we've given out, you'll, you'll notice I've varied from our normal translation. I, I love this particular translation that encourages us. And I think if you're an NIV user, you'll find it in yours. And uh, if you're a New Living Translation, you'll find it in yours. But there is this encouragement from the Apostle Paul that all of us are to live and be characterized by a true humility before all men. And, 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 and I want to talk about this for just a brief second because what we're, where he's going to go is going to help us understand what this means and how we get there. I want to define for you for just a second what humility is. And my favorite definition of humility actually comes from, from C.J. Mahaney. I can take no credit for this. But he said, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness 
and our sinfulness. True humility, true humility is an ongoing attitude, ongoing practice, ongoing cultivation of the soul to assess ourselves rightly in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You see, this ultimately becomes the characteristic. This ultimately becomes the matrix or or ultimately becomes the linchpin for all that Paul has encouraged us and encouraged this church to be and to do, to find leaders who enjoy grace, to find people who enjoy grace, to cultivate men and women who not only enjoy that grace but find a passion and a zeal to encourage others to enjoy that grace, to be a church that's characterized by the enjoyment of grace. Ultimately, that means we are to be a church that displays a true humility before all men because if nothing else, that is the fruit of truly enjoying God's grace as we become a people who are consistently, intentionally cultivating our soul to make an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and in light of our sinfulness. A failure in either one of those directions will prove ultimately in the long run, if not immediately, to have disastrous results. And so to conclude his letter, the Apostle Paul, I love how he does this, takes us back to the one way, the one place, the one message that enables us, that enables us to be a people that will display a true humility in our lives, in our relationships with one another. He's gonna take us back to a a truth that magnifies grace. If we're gonna be a church that deeply enjoys the, the grace of God, if we're gonna be a people who are characterized by deeply enjoying the grace of God, if we're gonna find leaders who enjoy the grace of God, at root, It's going to take a belief, a faith, a hope, a leaning into with all that we are into a truth that exalts, a truth that magnifies the grace of God. This is where the Apostle Paul is going to go. Now it's going to get really fun. The first thing that we've got to do to see true humility formed in our life is we must cultivate an increasing awareness of our need for grace. Let me personalize that for you. You must cultivate an increasing awareness of your need for God's grace. Look at what he says in verse three. Once, we too were foolish and disobedient. We were foolish. We were without understanding. We were without a right understanding of of who God is and what he's done and what that should mean for how we understand ourselves and the world around us. We We were foolish and we were disobedient. Even the understanding that we had even the little bits that we may have known about who God was, even the little bit of understanding we had about what he's done for us and how he has sustained us, Paul said, even that little bit of understanding we may have had, we were disobedient to. We were foolish without understanding, disobedient to the will of God that we actually understood. We were misled and we became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. We were led astray by our own passions and by our own wants. Our own hearts betrayed us. Our own hearts sought glory that Chris was talking about earlier that does not find its home, that does not find its center of gravity, that does not find its purpose in who God is and what he has done for us. We were thieving God of his glory. Our own hearts were after something that they were not created to be after and they led us astray pursuing things that could never give us what we wanted, that could never fulfill the promises that they made. And because of our foolishness, we were unable to see them for what they really were and we find ourselves enslaved to them. And the fruit of our foolishness and disobedience and 
enslavement to our own sinful passions and desires is that our lives were full of envy and evil and we hated each other. I love how James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, you can read his letter in the New Testament, I love how he finally diagnoses all the struggles and the fights and the, and the hatred that we experience with one another, all the, the infighting and the disagreements that we have. He says, do you know why you fight the way you do? I mean, do you know why you have so much struggle with one another? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Is it not that he just said something that you didn't like or he, he ate something that you didn't like or he went somewhere you didn't want him to go? What you wanted from him, what you wanted out of him, what you thought would bring you what you needed most was being rejected by him at that place and your passions, your heart, your desires were at war within you. Your very heart has produced the conflict and the struggle and the envy and the evil that you find borne out in your lives together. This is where we were, Paul said. This is the most accurate assessment of where we were, who we are by nature when we're born. Paul's talking about our propensity, our need, I should say, our need to cultivate an accurate awareness of our sinfulness. Greg Gilbert pastor up in D.C. He's actually coming to Charlottesville. If you have friends who go to UVA or, or family who are in Charlottesville, I'd encourage you to, to, to find Greg Gilbert. He just moved there this past week. Um, he's becoming a good friend, but he wrote a great book just a couple of weeks ago called What is the Gospel? Fantastic introduction to the gospel. And he said this about our wickedness. He said, there is a huge difference between understanding yourself to be guilty of sins and knowing yourself to be guilty of sin." Most of you have no problem at all admitting that you have committed sins as long as you can see them as isolated mistakes in an otherwise pretty good life. Sin does not shock us much, but what shocks us is when we see the sin that infects us down to the deepest parts of our core. It's in us. It's of us. It's not just on us. This is what the Apostle Paul is guiding us to a desperate need in the cultivation of true humility, a desperate need in the cultivation of a soul that deeply enjoys the grace of God. There's a necessary step that we've got to take, and that's a constant awareness of our need for the grace of God. Your sin is not just on you. It's not just isolated acts that you find yourself doing sometimes when you want to and sometimes when you don't want to. Sin is our nature, It's infected every single part of who we are, our mind, our our will, our soul, our emotions, our feelings, our personalities. They're all affected by the sinfulness within us. And we have to get to the place where we have an accurate assessment of the depth and the pervasiveness of this sin. Every part of our being is being corrupted by it. The Apostle Paul told another church in, in Rome, he said this, he said, the mind that is set on the flesh, set on your personal passions and desires, the same thing he just said, To to Titus, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Your sin is so pervasive. Your sinfulness is so pervasive that you can see the goodness of God in the face of Christ and still in your sin turn away from it in disgust. Your sinfulness is so pervasive that you can come to some understanding of who God is and what he has done, and in your own sin and in your own disgust, turn away from it. 
he went on to tell that same church that one day every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. There is a day coming, the Apostle Paul said, that in our sinfulness, we will stand before God and every single one of us will have to give an account before God. What in the world is that going to be like? What, stop, what in the world is that going to be like? If that couldn't get worse, that we would have to stand before God and give an account for our actions, for our thoughts, for our motivations, not just the things we did, but the reasons why we did them. What in the world is that going to be like? And if it couldn't get worse than that, <laughs> he went on to tell that same church in Rome that the wages for our sinfulness, the cost of our sinfulness before God, is death. What we deserve for our pervasive sinfulness before God, who created us, who sustained us, who nourished us, and we disregarded him. And the cost for our pervasive sinfulness before him when we're held accountable to him in that day is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. An eternal separation from the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and the mercy of God for all eternity. That is what is due to us because of the pervasive sinfulness that's found in our hearts, that's found in our soul. And we have to cultivate an increasing awareness of that. You have to cultivate an increasing awareness of the pervasiveness of your sin. Of the skewing of your passions and your motivations. But Paul's not done. You see, if Paul left us there, one of two things would happen. If we actually move forward in obedience to what he was saying and we cultivated an awareness of just how sinful and pervasively sinful we really were, we'd be left one, and I think the majority of us would be left to despair. We would be left to utter despair because we would only grow in a greater and greater awareness of just how sinful we really are and just how much we truly disregard who God is. But there's others of us who are a little more type A in our personalities and a little more tenacious and we would come to some level of an awareness of our sin and we would go about finding ways that we could try to remedy what we recognized was wrong. That we could go about finding ways that we could do different things or change different things about us that would reflect a different kind of life and would live a different way but we could find ways that we could fix what we saw was wrong and rather than ending up in despair and frustration we would end up swelled to the gills with pride. So the Apostle Paul doesn't leave us there to find a, a truth that magnifies the grace of God and cultivates a true humility. It starts by, by recognizing increasingly the pervasiveness of your sin, but, but there's more. He says in verse four, but, arguably one of the greatest words in the entire Bible, but, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love. But, one of the most powerful words in the English language. One single word can turn an entire circumstance and situation on its head. But, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, while we were foolish, while we were disobedient, while we were envious, while we were enslaved, God revealed his kindness and love. The expectation that I have when I read this with honesty 
when I sat down and slowly read this, this text this week, the expectation that I had in my own frustration and in my own sin was to hear this revealing not of love and mercy, but of judgment and wrath. The expectation is that when I understand just how wicked I really am and just how pervasive my sin is, when God's going to reveal something to me, it's not going to be kindness. It's not going to be mercy. It's going to be judgment and wrath. But Paul said, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and his love, and I chose this translation again for a particular reason, because some of you are going to read in your Bibles, and it's going to say, when the kindness and love of God appeared. But I love how it says it here, when God revealed his kindness and love. There was an intentionality on God's part. I mean, God could have revealed his wrath and his judgment and his utter frustration with man for eternity past, centuries before this. All of the breath that man had taken to this point was nothing but God's kindness and love. And it had been totally disregarded, but there was something else that God was waiting to reveal. And I love how it says this. There was an intentionality on God's part at the perfect time and in the perfect way to reveal a kindness and a love that we had disregarded and missed forever. But it all changes here. God reveals to us not judgment, but love and mercy. And how does he do that? How does he do that? Paul gives us a little bit of a clue in that verse. When he says, God, our Savior, has revealed to us kindness and love. If you look down at verse 6, he later on says that he, talking about God, generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. How did God reveal his kindness and his love towards a disobedient, envious, self-righteous, disregarding, pervasively wicked people? He did it in his Son, When God's intentionality came to full fruition to love us and to pour out his kindness upon us, he did not give us a a system of things that we have to figure out how to do, rules that we need to obey, truths that we need to memorize, statements that we need to say. He gave us himself in his son. And in his son, he has revealed to us in his life and in his sacrificial death his ultimate kindness and mercy towards sinners like you and I who are pervasively disregarding who he is and what he's done. When God determined to reveal himself to us in all the fullness of his kindness and love and mercy, he did it through his son, Jesus. He wants us to know. He wanted us to see. He wanted us to taste in a completely different way the depth of his love towards us. What did that love look like? What did it look like? What did he do when he revealed himself? What did he actually do? What he says, he, in verse five, he saved us. When God poured out his love and poured out his kindness and poured out his mercy upon us while we were yet sinners and disregarding who he was and came to us in his son Jesus, what did he do? He didn't tell us what to do. He, he did what we couldn't do on our behalf. While we were still sinners in complete disregard for God, finding ourselves in a place of absolute and utter inability to change, to deal with the pervasive wickedness that had absolutely scarred and destroyed our heart like a cancer. We found ourselves in a place of utter inability, an utter inability to change anything and fix anything. God revealed himself in his son and took the shape of the very rescue and help that we couldn't provide for ourselves. 
his kindness and his love came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I love how he says it, how Paul says it in Philippians 2. I didn't know if I was going to do this, but I think I will. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this. Talking about Jesus, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ left the eternal presence of the Godhead, the place where he had been for all of eternity, experiencing the love, the mutual joy and satisfaction that God found in himself. Jesus Christ laid aside the rights that were his due to his divinity. And he came to this broken earth in this broken place. He took on the form of man, the form of a servant. And as we say around here all the time, he lived the life that we were created to live. The life that God created us for, the life of perfect satisfaction in who God is for us, a life of perfect dependence upon God to be for us all that we need. He lived the life that we were created to live. And then in his sacrifice and in his obedience to the purpose and plan of God, he then took upon himself the punishment for our disregard. He not only lived the life we were supposed to live, he then paid the wages for our sin in our place. He then died the death that was due to us. The wages that Paul said for our sin, that word death, that were due to us for our disregard, Jesus came and he took those things in our place. He came and lived perfectly before God. He came and did what we couldn't do and then died to pay the price for the life that we lived instead. And in that, he has saved us. And God has shown us and poured out his love and his kindness upon us in what they call the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus in our place for our sins. In our place on that cross, Jesus absorbed and exhausted the totality of God's wrath against our sin. He didn't just suffer it, he exhausted it. And in satisfaction for his substitute, in satisfaction for that exchange, Jesus died in our place and God vindicated that by raising him from the dead. Where he now sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, for all of eternity. When God poured out his kindness and love to us in the person of his son, he saved us. Why did he do it? What would compel him to do such a thing? Since the time that we were created, we had lived in utter disregard for him, utter dissatisfaction in who he is and what he's done. What would compel him to do such a thing? Listen to what Paul says. It wasn't because of the righteous things we had done. It wasn't because of all the good things that you've done. It wasn't because of all the homeless people that you fed. It wasn't because of all the shut-ins that you visited. It wasn't because of all the prisoners that you've gone and talked to. It wasn't because of all the older people you've walked across the street. It wasn't because of any of the good things that you think he's done. Why did he do such a thing for us? He did it because of his mercy. He did it because of his mercy. And if it hasn't happened to you already, it's probably going to happen to you at this place. You're going to have this inner defense attorney, this inner voice that's going to rise up and, and holler out, Objection! Hold on! You need to strike that from the record. I know there are times I do things that don't glorify God. 
I know there are times I do things where I'm really trying to intentionally seek some kind of reputation and glory for myself. I know there are times when I'm enticed away by things that I shouldn't be enticed away from. But on the whole, on the whole, I'm not really that bad. Those are just blips on the screen. There's got to be some measure of this sacrifice, some measure of this rescue that I have earned or that I have participated in or that I have done to deserve it. There's got to be something that of all the good things that I've done and all the nice things that I've done that have earned some type of reward from God. What do you mean it's not because of my righteousness and only because of his mercy? It's at that point when you hear that inner defense attorney begin to rise up in your conscience and and rise up in your mind. It's at that point that you've got to take those very statements to task. To that point that you have to turn around and question that attorney and put that attorney on the stand. And saying all the time that I have had breath on this earth and all the things that I have done, as Paul's getting ready to say, did I ever wash away and cleanse away my sin? He said he saved us, not because of our righteousness, but because of his mercy. And in saving us, he's washed away our sins. Did I ever do that? Did I ever have the capacity to wash away my sin? Did I ever have the capacity to take the record of of, of wrong and the pervasiveness of my sin and, and all that stacks up to be? Did I ever have the power to take all of that and do away with it for all of eternity? Did I ever have the power to take the record of my wickedness towards God and not only wipe it away, but expunge it? This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In rescuing us, Jesus has also washed away our sins. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to sin, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about that, but it means that the punishment that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve for our continued sinfulness has already been paid in full by Jesus, and God doesn't punish us again as well. It means that record of wrong, the record of those sins past, those sins present, and those sins future have been removed. The Old Testament said God looked at those things and he dismissed them from his face as far as the east is from the west. He blotted out our record. He didn't just wipe the slate clean, he threw it away completely. God himself has washed away our sins, and I want you to see this. If you don't catch anything in this, catch this. It was a deliberate act on God's part. It was a decisive decision that God made to wash away your sins and do away with the record of your disregard for him. And he's done it in the past, he's done it in the present, and he'll do it in the future, and he doesn't do it reluctantly. He does it joyfully. Jerry Bridges said that God takes pleasure in washing away our sin and blotting out our transgressions because he's delighted ultimately in the work of his son. He's delighted in the work of Jesus, living the life that we were created to live and then dying in our place to pay for our sin. God is so delighted in Jesus' substitute in our place. He takes the righteousness that Jesus earned because of his life and he takes the punishment that he suffered because of our sins And he credits them to us and he washes away that record because he's so satisfied in his son. I mean, what would it, I mean, what would it look like in your life? Let me just ask you, what would it look like in your life if the things that you did and the things that you said, 
the way you understood yourself and the way you understood the people that God has put in your life? What if you understood all that you do and all that you are, not as an effort to earn this kind of forgiveness and earn this kind of cleansing from God, but out of a response to what he's already done? I mean, what would it look like if you began to cultivate such an awareness of God's grace and such a delight and such a joy in God's grace and such an enjoyment for what he's done for you that you lived your life and, and the words that you spoke and the relationships that you had free from the guilt that you feel so desperately right to carry every single day? I mean, what if that baggage of guilt that you have carried because of the sins that you have committed, you could actually understand that because of Jesus, it's been taken away from you and you don't have to carry it anymore? I mean, what if you could actually taste and enjoy the freedom that was purchased for you by Jesus Christ himself due to God's grace and God's mercy alone? What if you actually enjoyed his grace and actually lived as a response to it? This is what the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do. He's washed away our sins. He has given us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He's generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, it would be one thing for God to just rescue us. It would be one thing for God to just rescue us from the pit of the pervasiveness of our sin. And it would be another thing altogether glorious for God to simply just expunge our record of sin and forgive us of our sin, past, present, and future, and remember it no more, but see us and delight in us just as he sees his son. If that was all that he had done, praise God. But it's not. If that was all that he had done, all that would have happened was that he would have taken the old you, the old Robert, he would have rescued him and forgiven him and wiped him clean till he shined, but I still would have been the same old me. I still would have been the same old me, just rescued from where I was and forgiven for what I've done and will do. But God says, by his grace, when he's poured out his love and mercy upon us, he's not only rescued us and not only forgiven us and washed away our sin, but he's given us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just forgive you and make you a better version of your old self. You become an absolutely new creation. You're clean and you're new. You're an absolutely new creation. And that new creation now has a new potential for the life that you live right now in this place by God's grace, empowered now by his spirit. You are now rescued and forgiven and cleansed and made new and given an absolutely new power for the life that God has given you, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. It would be one thing if he just saved us. Another thing, if he just forgave us and cleansed us, but instead he's made us new. I mean, what if we could actually believe that? I mean, what if we could actually appropriate that understanding in our life right now? I mean, what if we actually believed and enjoyed the grace of God in such a way that we measured our potential We measured our potential in this life and our potential towards godliness and measured our potential to live in a way that glorified God by the life that he has given us, the new nature that he's given us, and the power that he's given us in the Holy Spirit. What if we saw ourselves the way that he does? What if we just began to enjoy grace? What if we just began to enjoy grace? What if we were insistent and intentional about cultivating the habit enjoying grace on a day-in and day-out basis. 
I wrote down here in my notes that this text is an absolute Trinitarian assault of grace on your soul. Do you see the fullness of God? The fullness of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit assaulting your sinfulness with their grace. Do you see God taking your sinfulness to task? Do you see God taking the pervasive wickedness of your heart and your soul to task? Do you see a Trinitarian assault of grace on your soul? God pours out his spirit who cleanses you from sin and guilt, who gives you a new life and a new nature with a new power towards obedience possible because of the sacrificial work of his son Jesus. The Godhead is at war with your sin. Grace has laid to waste the wickedness that has so robbed you of life and vitality. The thing that I want you to see as you read this and go back this week and continue to read this and and deal with this text on your own, the thing I want you to see is that Paul takes great pains in this text to take every place for you to take any credit for this work and remove it. Paul takes great pains in what he says to say that all of this work, all of this renewal, all of this rescue, all of this cleansing, all of this transformation, all of this power, all of this potential is not because of you. You don't do it. You can't do it. You are in need of rescue. And there is only one Savior. There is only one Redeemer. Verse 7, Paul says, because of his grace, the grace that strips you of your pride and ground for boasting, the grace that cultivates the true humility necessary to be the people that God has called us to be, Because of his grace, he has declared us righteous and has given us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. I mean, because of God's grace in rescuing us and redeeming us and cleansing us and forgiving us and renewing us and empowering us, because of his grace, God has declared us righteous. If that wasn't enough, all of the rescue and forgiveness and cleansing wasn't enough because of his grace poured out on us through the work of his son empowered by his spirit God now sees you as he sees his son and when he looks at you he does not see you in the way that you feel when God looks at you he does not measure his assessment of you by the way you feel about yourself But when God looks at you because of the work of his son and the pouring out of his spirit, God looks at you and he sees the joy that he has in his son and you are declared right before God. And his grace that he calls us to enjoy freely and deeply gives us the very assurance that so many of us come in here desperate to try to find. It gives us the very assurance that so many of us do so many things throughout the week chasing with all that we are to find somewhere. God's very grace towards us provides us with the confidence and the assurance before him that our hearts are so desperately looking for. Because of God's grace, we have a standing with God. 
that can never be altered, that can never be changed, that can never be taken away because it's not based on what we do, but it's based on what Jesus has done in our place. And what? And what is all of this supposed to produce in us? I mean, what is all of this supposed to, to produce? What kind of fruit is supposed to come of all this work of God's grace on our behalf in our life? Love what Paul says. As you enjoy this grace, as you cultivate your soul to enjoy this grace in ever deepening and increasing measure, this should produce in you confidence. Confidence. Confidence in who God is. Confidence in what he's done. Confidence in what that means for you. Confidence in how that impacts the way that you live your life. Confident in the things that you're supposed to say and the things that you're supposed to do. If there's anything that the people of God in this day and in this age are consistently lacking and looking for, it's confidence. And Paul says the very grace of God that we're called to enjoy, the very grace of God that's rescued us and changed us and redeemed us is to produce in us as we enjoy it, confidence. Enjoying the grace of God deeply is the only true and lasting source to produce the assurance and the confidence that you're so desperately looking for. All the ways that we're tempted to to search these things out, all the misdirected places we're supposed to put our trust and put our hope to find this kind of assurance, Paul says all you've got to do is enjoy the grace of God more deeply. It's the grace of God on your behalf that produces the very thing that you're looking for. Enjoying the grace of God individually and collectively as a church is the only way to avoid becoming a gathering of religious people who are desperately in need of assurance. Because as we enjoy grace deeply, as we cultivate an awareness of our need for God's grace, and as we continually cultivate a delight in God's grace, what that produces in our souls and in our lives is a confidence that shapes who we are and how we live. Look at verse eight, and here's where we'll close. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying. Enjoy the grace of God. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. The grace of God as has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus is the most trustworthy thing that you can bank your life and bank your hope on. It is the one thing that we consistently, day in and day out, week in and week out, and all that we say and all that we do, try to insist upon in everything. All the things that we could be tempted to insist upon all the things that we think would produce a health and a vitality and a confidence and a congregation, all the things we're tempted to chase after to build those things. Paul says this is the only trustworthy thing you can bank on. We must insist upon an enjoyment of the grace of God. We must insist upon seeing that our responsibility to one another and our lives together is to encourage one another daily to insist upon one another daily that our faith and that our hope lean deeply and solely and sufficiently into the grace of God. Our lives together, not only when we're gathered here, but when we're scattered throughout the city, we're to be insistent, insistent with each other that we find our deepest joy and deepest delight and deepest enjoyment in the grace of God. 
we're to insist upon this because it is the one thing, the only thing that can produce all that we're ultimately looking for. It is the only thing that can produce the health that God is calling us to reflect. It is the only thing that can produce a reflection to a watching world that mirrors the character of God as he's revealed himself in his scriptures. I want you to see what Paul says here as we close. I don't want you to get confused. Pay attention to the order of what he said. Insist on these things. Insist on the enjoyment of grace. Insist on people cultivating their soul to enjoy grace so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. He ends the way he starts. Godliness, right living, passions and motivations and desires that glorify God and not ourselves are produced by grace. Grace produces godliness, not the other way around. Not the other way around. We don't try to figure out all the things that we've got to do to earn the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in our life. <laughs> Leaning into it with all that we are. Leaning into the grace of God by faith is what produces godliness and good works in our life. If you try to make your good behavior the root, the foundation for your acceptance and forgiveness before God, you'll destroy the fruit. You'll destroy the fruit. But when the root of your life, when that which gives it life and health and meaning and vitality is the grace of God, is who God is and what he has done for us by his son, that will produce the fruit of godliness in your life. That will produce a people zealous for good works. That will produce a people who do not see their time together and their purpose together to just find assurance to face the world they live in, but it will produce a people full of faith and full of hope and full of courage and full of passion to go and to reflect the mercy and the justice and the love of God to see people enjoy the very same grace that they have enjoyed. That's what we're called to be. That is the one thing that we will insist upon because the most pressing threat the most dangerous threat that we face as a church is not from outside, but it's from within. It's from a misplaced faith, a misplaced hope in what can truly bring forgiveness, confidence, assurance, joy, and health. And so Paul says, insist upon this. Insist upon a deep enjoying of the grace of God. As I wondered this week, why we're here, why you're here, all the things that you could go and do and all the places you could be. Why, why here? I wonder, that if it, wonder what it would be like if the Apostle Paul showed up today. If he talked with us as we got coffee and sang with us as we sang songs and sat there as I preached and hung out with us when we were done and if he grabbed me as pastors often do when they're here I said, let's go get some lunch. I, I wondered what he would say about us. I wondered what he would say about our time together. I wondered if he, would, if he would say that while he was here, he saw that our worship revealed a growing awareness among us of the darkness and the sin from which we've been redeemed. And our time together and the words that we say and the songs that we sing reflect a growing awareness 
of God's redeeming love towards us. Would he say, I saw an overflowing thankfulness in your people because of a holy God who has called them to be his children and made them his sons and daughters. Would our mouths and our words and our songs and our lives reflect that? Would he say, I was encouraged by your zeal to see those around you transformed by the gospel. And I was encouraged for the way that you encourage one another and strive together in prayer for the cultivation of your soul. Would he say that he was encouraged because our zeal for the gospel has spread throughout the whole region? I wonder what he would say. This is who we are called to be. This is God's intention for the church. The way in which we become the people that God has called us to be is by cultivating a deep enjoyment in his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you doesn't even seem appropriate. Thank you for your intentionality to not withhold your love and not withhold your kindness, to not withhold your mercy, not to only give us a portion, but to pour out the depths of your love and kindness and mercy towards us for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, help us, every single one of us, whether that message is new or whether it's been 20 years in the making in our hearts, help us learn right now, Father, to lean into that message, to lean into that reality with all that we are. Help us to find our faith rooted surely in what you have done for us in Jesus. Or let us be ambitious on a day-in and day-out basis to cultivate our soul, to enjoy your grace. Let that ambition mark us on a daily basis. Let us be a people who are zealous to enjoy your grace, who are passionate to dig deeper into your grace, into the message of your goodness towards us, who are passionate to be shaped by that message, who are passionate to reflect an enjoyment in that message. Let us be a people who are certain, who are certain in the power of that message. Lord, we ask that, that you would be glorified in our lives, and that we would taste and experience the depth of your joy. Amen.